Electric trucks might not be as easy as we think. Hi, I'm Jim Park. This is episode four of our second season. If you haven't already, please check out the other great episodes in season one. We've already done two episodes on electric trucks, but frankly, we've just barely scratched the surface. Vehicle electrification is probably the most profound change ever to hit transportation and the trucking industry in particular. On this episode, we'll be discussing where we'll get all the energy we need to power those electric trucks and how those trucks will change just about everything we currently know about buying, selling and maintaining trucks. I'm joined by Rick Mihalik, the Director of Future Technologies at the North American Council for Freight Efficiency. As one of NACFI's lead researchers, Rick is deeply involved in these projects. He's written or co-written four reports on electric trucks and their must-reads for anyone who's keenly interested in the matter. We'll put a link in the podcast description so you can find those reports more easily, and they're free, by the way. We spoke with Rick at the ATA's Technology and Maintenance Council's annual meeting in February. When we come back, why electric trucks might not be as easy as we think. HDT Talks Trucking is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. HDTX is a unique networking event for fleets and suppliers that opens doors to long and beneficial business relationships. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn more. And if you run light to medium duty trucks, check out Work Truck Exchange. That's worktruckex.com. Uh, hi, Rick, and welcome to HDT Talks Trucking. Hi, it's good to be here at TMC. You had a presentation on Sunday morning uh, during the press conference, and you said something really telling, and I thought, let's explore that a little bit. You said electric trucks are not going to be as easy as we once thought they were. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, it's fairly easy to discount uh, an electric truck as being a, uh, a blue sky science project. And so that group of people uh, are starting to find out that there's a lot of reality and so there's more complexity and more uh, usefulness out of an electric vehicle than they would give it credit. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, people that um, are so deep in the weeds that, that, that they say the details, you can't do things. Um, like they get hung up on unknown issues about residual value, uh, vehicle range, vehicle weight, things like that. Well, it turns out that, you know, there's no one battery electric vehicle design. There's no one battery. And so you have to think of this in terms of there is a battery electric vehicle suited for a specific duty cycle. And then in other duty cycles, it's completely the wrong tool. And uh, what we're at NACFI doing is trying to uh, clarify where it makes sense to put the battery electric vehicle so that they're successful when they get deployed. Well, doesn't the medium-duty market make a lot more sense right now? Uh, lighter yeah. weights, shorter runs, opportunity yeah. charging for you, you regening? See, you see all the OEMs talking about medium-duty, and you see products coming out uh, you know, regularly. Uh, medium-duty makes sense because it is basically a depot operation. The, the vehicle has to come back once, twice, three times a day. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it's sitting in that, in that depot. And so there's an opportunity there for the one charger to satisfy that vehicle during its, its shift. Now, it, comes a little, it becomes a little more challenging when you talk about two shift operations, but still you have a, a long enough dwell time between two shifts mm -hmm. that you could charge. 
a three-shift operation is even more challenging, and that's where you have to get into these these rapid chargers that are higher wattage levels. So um, a lot of that is speculated now. Nobody has a lot of production hardware yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the Charan group is talking about uh, up to one, one uh, megawatt level chargers, right? Instead of the 100 kilowatt or 150 kilowatt that the car people use. I think myself included, a lot of people assume that you need uh, direct access to a lot of energy. Uh, if you're a distribution center somewhere in Fresno, California, uh, you've got 20 or 30 electric trucks, right. Right. you need a huge amount of power uh, yeah. when those trucks are charging. So uh, how does the, the desert uh, solar model work in that application, or does it? Well, in the desert solar model, they, they, they would be combining the, the solar generation during the day with having battery storage. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would probably be tapping into wind too. I, I'm pretty sure both both are going to be involved. But if you're in the suburbs in Fresno, and that's where your terminal is, far from the desert, do you just run lines in, or? No, in, in those situations, uh, they're they're probably going to be using battery storage more um, and drawing slowly off of the grid resources that they have without overtaxing things, yeah. so that on site they've got enough power to do what they need to. Um, but without having instantaneous issues with, with uh, you know, a truck, a truck pulls in, needs a megawatt of energy for 30 minutes, and then pulls out, right? That's a very spiky load, mm-hmm. right? But in the background, if they've got battery storage, they can level that out. So what the grid is seeing is a continuous draw all day long. And, and you know, if you think about how a, a fuel cell vehicle works or a battery electric vehicle works, that's how it drives down the road. The spikes in it, 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 when you hit there. the throttle, throttle pedal, the accelerator, you're sending electricity to the motor at, at yeah. different rates. So, um, you know, that, that's how the system works. Is the battery is is allowing you to to survive all that, uh, and that's what's going to happen, I think, with these. Uh, charging stations is that you're going to have a pretty substantial storage element in order to make it financially viable so that you're not you're not overwhelming the 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 local grids at all and you're able to provide cost effective energy at a at a constant rate what i'm hearing you say now is the electricity the energy is not going to be as big a problem as some people I think that generating the electricity is, has never been an issue. Uh, the analysis that we've done in the United States uh, shows that uh, we have today an excess capacity. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we have the ability to take a coal-fired power plant and replace it with a natural gas power plant, that means we've got, we've got extra capacity, right? Yeah. We're, yeah. we're deactivating power generation because the demand isn't there. And it's all based on market pricing that we're moving from one mode to another. Um, so it's not a capacity issue. It, it's more a delivery issue. And I think it's more of what you would call in the, on the energy side a last mile delivery of the energy. Because I think the, the grids are pretty well set up to get power to a region. Uh, but it's one, once it's in the region, you have to look at those local... Um, geographies to see whether or not they've got the capacity. And that's what utilities do, is that they make money off of installing infrastructure. So um, it's kind of a business opportunity for a large segment of people and, and, and companies. 
to, to put that infrastructure in place. But the demand's got to be there. Yeah. That needs trucks. Chicken and egg. And right now you got maybe 100 prototype trucks in the United States that are class eight. And you know, you've got eight million tractors potentially in use in the United States in different modes and two, two million on highway type tractors. So we're a long way from production being significant enough to be affecting demand on some of these things. We're talking with Rick Mihalik, the Director of Future Technologies at the North American Council for Freight Efficiency. NACFI is looking closely at the electrification of medium and heavy-duty trucks. Rick and I have been talking about where we're going to get the energy to power all those electric trucks. By the way he talks, that might be the easy part. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the hardware changes and factors that will impact the trucks themselves and how they're purchased and maintained. We'll be right back with a look at what we now call residual value. Don't go away. Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange is put on by Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine and our host suppliers. Our editors tapped into decades of experience working with trucking fleets to develop this valuable annual event. If you qualify, we'll bring you and a few dozen other fleet managers to Scottsdale, Arizona for a jam-packed session of networking, education, and fun. It all happens in a friendly, intimate environment where you can develop lasting relationships and pick up ideas to make your business more successful. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn more. And if you operate light to medium-duty work trucks, check out Work Truck Exchange. That's worktruckex.com. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges of the trucks themselves, the hardware. Um, a lot of people in trucking base their business decisions on life cycle cost. That usually includes the residual value in the truck when they trade it in. I know it's way too early. We've got 100 prototypes <laughs> out there, and they've probably got less than 1,000 miles on them. Uh, who's talking about trading them in? What's going to happen when we do start thinking about the residual value on these trucks? I think the, the modeling of uh, buying and then reselling a truck is going to change significantly with, with EVs. The uh, residual value is still going to be a question, but if, if the, uh, the desire that these are a third less intensive in maintenance is really true, and you know, I recognize there's a ramp up, a learning curve, but once these products are mature, if they really are uh, operating at a third of the maintenance cost, that means that they're probably not needing to be traded at three or four or five years. Right. The, what tends to force that trade cycle is that the maintenance costs become too excessive on the diesel. And so there's a point where, where they make a financial decision that it, it's more cost effective to get a new truck than it is to keep maintaining the existing one. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a little bit of other stuff in there related to you know, keeping the interiors fresh and keeping new drivers excited about new product and things like that that's a little bit harder to capture. But on the maintenance side, it's a pretty easy model to look at. Yeah. So if you suddenly triple the, the, uh, the maintenance lifespan of a, uh, of a vehicle, you don't need to trade it at three or four years. And so now you're talking about maybe the first owner is the only owner and the vehicle goes 10 years and at 10 years it's scrapped. And so the whole residual case starts to go out the window in that. You, you look at UPS, they buy a truck and they run it 22 years, and then they scrap it. 
right? So where did residual value come into their math? It never it's not did. There at all. Right? So I think there are some variables here in how we think about the problem that people need to be uh, looking at. It's not the same exact business case as today's diesel. You're almost talking more like a, a full-service maintenance lease on the equipment. Yeah, just a monthly payment. And, and along that lines, with a lease, a lease type of operation, you know, Ryder's very big on this. You get maintenance, and, and with maintenance comes the possibility that you are less subject to risk from uh, technology obsolescence. So if you think about your laptops and your cell phones, you know, some of these people buy a new cell phone every year. The old one still works, but it, it becomes harder and harder to service, right? Mm -hmm. So what I found in the past with a lot of the IC-based, the, the uh, computer-based equipment, is that the life cycle of, of chip manufacturing becomes an issue. If the chip industry is advancing very rapidly, the chip you put in your vehicle today may not be attainable in four years' time. They, they have stopped producing it. Mm -hmm. And so you're pulling out of some guy's warehouse inventory that was built four years before yeah. to support your production line. Right? So there, there's some risk there that a 10-year-old truck or an 8-year-old truck, uh, you may not be able to get parts for. Right? Unless somebody has thought through all of that. Uh, uh, you know, a mature company like Cummins is pretty proud of the fact that they can support an engine from decades ago because they, they, they had the insight to inventory enough parts to project out the life of the entire model line, right? Well beyond when they stopped producing it. Um, some of these new guys are not going to have the, the depth of capital to do that or necessarily have thought about it. And so you may find out that um, your truck today, in four years' time, you can't get parts for it, so you have to buy a new truck. That happens with PCs all the time, right? So Yeah. yeah. Well, if we're talking about a truck, I use a Cummins analogy, which yep, was yep. a good one. If you can buy a crankshaft from a 20-year-old engine, it's obviously a challenge to get the old crankshaft out and put the new one in with electronics. So much of it is plug-and-play. You would think so. Is this moving in the plug-and-play sort of the direction where you take out the old IC, drop in a new one, or a module of some sort that... Yeah, the, the Air Force has wrestled with this for a long time. If you think about pretty old supporting a B-52 yeah. that's, that's, that's older than I am, they, they have, have repeatedly tried to come up with the, um, the magic solution that is a, a constant software system that lives forever. And um, to some extent, they've succeeded in, in cases, but most of the time, uh, you know, it really doesn't work out because technology evolves so quickly that what you were doing last year is no longer the right solution. Well, even Windows 10 and Windows 7, right. we can't go back to Windows 3.1. That's exactly right. But in most of the, the, uh, the digital world of vehicles and with, with handheld communication devices and PCs and GPS systems, it, you know, people are paid to think of new ideas and be innovative, and those new ideas are, don't always, they're not always compatible with last year's model. And so people want the new features and they, they kind of are, are into making the hardware disposable. On a, on a new electric truck or a five-year-old electric truck, what parts would you typically be looking at replacing from an electronics point of view as they age? From, from the analysis that we've looked at uh, with, with uh, the automotive industry, 
where you've got some almost a decade history of, of making uh, battery electric vehicles, uh, you're seeing that the batteries are actually lasting pretty much the prescribed length of the warranty period. So there, there's always been a discussion that they can't last very long and they'll have to be replaced all the time. Well, the fact is they're actually lasting long enough. It's a, it's, a, it's a design feature. You can say you have a five-year battery and you design it for five years okay. and likely it fails at six years right, because you've designed it for a five-year life. If it's a seven-year battery or a 10-year battery, the, 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 the ability to design, it, to design it for the life is there. There's no technology challenges for designing it for, for its duty cycle and its life. But the things that, that uh, you would worry about would be the motors and the battery and if the batteries are, are surviving, uh, if they can be designed to survive the life, the motors are pretty much designed for industries where they're supposed to last a long time and they're being adapted into vehicles. So uh, motors have been in maturation now for over 100 years. Electric motors are pretty, pretty well understood. And so my confidence level with the motors is that they're going to be Part of when you go to scrap, you're going to be able to sell the motors to the ag industry or the mining industry oh, yeah. or yeah. somebody else, yeah. and they're going to be fat, dumb, and happy that they can put that into a pump and have it last another 10, 10 years, yeah. right? Okay. Or you, you, what you, you know, talking about these vehicles as being uh, basically replaceable components. At 10 years' time, though, the wheels, the motors, the chassis, and everything may still be fine. You put in a new interior, drop in a new battery pack, and maybe that's all you do, because the cables and the motors are still good for another 10 years. One of the, one of the thoughts I had, you know, you saw this in some of the introductions of uh, startup foreign companies that brought cars into the United States. Um, in order to get customers to have some confidence in them, they offered 10-year warranties, right? That was pretty much unheard of when they, when they did that. But it was a tremendous marketing advantage because suddenly uh, you know, the, the risk factor was less of a concern to a buyer, and so they were willing to try a new product line. You may be seeing that in these startups trying to win market share away from established OEMs. They may be looking at offering certain package deals that the OEMs haven't been offering and a 10-year you know, warranty with 10-year battery life and, and a guarantee of 10 years on the motors and all of the electronic components, um, that, might, that might be a, a, a risk these startup companies are willing to make to win the market share. And once they start doing that, all the other uh, secondary components, the you know, the front axles, tires, wheels, suspension systems, things like that, are gonna have to get uh, into the same ballpark in order for them to be able to do it. Yeah. So you might see some, some shift in, in, in those second, secondary parts, those alternate parts, right? Yeah, fascinating. Well, things to think about. We're just about out of time here, but you wanna throw a couple of uh, last minute comments on the table, where we're going, how soon we'll get there? Uh, humps that you think yeah. they have to get over? The, there, there is a desire for people to jump to the end of the book on electric vehicles, and that means in their, in their vision, there are charging stations everywhere uh, similar to current gas stations and diesel stations. Um, 
the reality is that we got here um, over decades and decades of infrastructure being put in and product being matured. The reality is that as these manufacturers ramp up production, uh, you know, today we make, in a really good year, we make maybe 300,000 tractors, class eight tractors, right? Um, if there's 2.2 million tractors out there in on-highway operation and 8 million tractors actually in, in, in the United States doing different things, um, it's going to take a while at full production doing nothing but electric vehicles to replace all those vehicles. So you're not going to get 100% electric vehicles next year, right? And given that new technology has to be uh, adopted by a marketplace, you don't have 100% of people buying the production that you're doing. It, there's a, a ramp up on those, on those uh, rates. So you're gonna see uh, factories producing a, a few hundred vehicles a year, and then maybe you get lucky and it's a few thousand vehicles a year, but you're gonna, you're gonna be out there a decade before you see 300,000 vehicles a year at least, right? In all that time, you're gonna, you're gonna have infrastructure being built out, right? So you don't need infrastructure all over the United States right if now. you're making a few thousand vehicles a year. Yeah. And things like the zero emission mandates and, and regulations in California, those are going to accelerate adoption, but they're gonna be accelerated in the marketplaces where those rules are in place. In the, the other parts of the country, there'll be slower adoption rates, but yeah. they'll eventually catch up. Yeah. So that's my, that's my vision on where, where this is going. And I, I know that you know, advocates out there for instantaneous solution to um, global warming are, are there, and it's reasonable for them to ask for instantaneous solutions. You know, everybody wants the moon, but there are some realities around how fast you can tool up and, and uh, some economic realities about how fast the marketplace can absorb vehicles. I worry about those people. Uh, they've got the ear of government. They're expert lobbyists, they're activists, uh, and they want everything yesterday. And yes, it's a laudable goal, and we have to get there, but if people start making the wrong decisions to push this technology through before it's, I'm not even yes, sure, yes. Uh, and it's adolescent stage, ready to go, we can get into a heck of a lot of trouble. Yeah. And that's, that's where NACFI's initiative uh, that we announced this week is, is really focused, is trying to identify those lanes, those, those corridors in the United States that make the most sense, and those fleets where parts of their operation make the most sense to electrify, mm -hmm. right? So that those, those initial you know, small numbers of vehicles are actually put into success-based uh, operations. And uh, they're not rushed into the wrong marketplace just because they're electric and then fail. And that causes, you know, a delay overall in the adoption rate. Yeah. So hopefully we can keep those people at bay for a few more years while guys yep. like you figure it all out for us. Well, there's people at both ends of that, right? You, yeah. You've got the other end that, 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 that admit that diesel's never going to go away, right? And so all of this is just a complete waste of time and energy in their viewpoint. And those people are just as, as right to have that opinion as the people at the other end who want it to happen tomorrow. And the thing is that in the middle, the, the, the combination of both those people and everybody in between is going to move the marketplace forward into a more uh, electric world. And as you know, you know, Daimler's 
Daimler's head said, you know, the future's electric, and we, we have endorsed that for two years at NACFI, that that's, that's where it's going to go. But uh, we can debate when it's going to happen based on actual production rates getting in, in place and markets developing to buy them. Well, appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that, Rick, and uh, I'm looking forward to that 10-year period where these things are really starting to happen. I'm excited about it. Thanks. Yeah. We are too. HDT Talks Trucking is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. HDTX is a unique networking event for fleets and suppliers that opens doors to long and beneficial business relationships. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn more. And if you run light to medium duty trucks, check out Work Truck Exchange. That's worktruckex.com. We're now into season two of HDT Talks Trucking. If you haven't already, please check out all the episodes back in season one. You'll be glad you did. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps us reach a broader audience. And if you find the podcast valuable, please share it with your co-workers and friends on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all the rest. Big thanks to our guest, Rick Mihalik. And don't forget to check out NACFI's guidance reports on electric trucks. They're free, and you can find them on the NACFI website. That's N-A-C-F-E dot O-R-G. HDT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening. Thank you.